When life ends tragically and suddenly, or perhaps even naturally, in its due course, can those final moments provide an opportunity for a final goodbye or a heartfelt thank you to those that mean the most to us, even if they are not with us at our last breath? Is there more connecting us to each other than we think? That may remove even death as a barrier to communication. These are the questions we will explore this episode. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, theoryologists. This time, we will be exploring the phenomenon commonly known as crisis apparitions. About a year ago, I had the opportunity to hear a story which perfectly exemplifies this phenomenon. I was out running errands, one of which was to stop at my cell phone store to finally bite the bullet and upgrade my phone to a newer model. Fortunately for me, I wandered in at an opportune time and found myself to be the only customer. The store and the staff were at my disposal. The staff, which was comprised of the manager and two store associates, was friendly and eager to help. They quickly began working through the process of getting the new phone set up and all my data transferred. My only job was to stand there and wait while making small talk and answering the occasional question. Now I'm a podcaster, which of course meant that the conversation naturally led to me asking if any of them listened to podcasts and what it was they listened to. Of course, I explained this show and some example topics. This got their minds going, and we moved into the conversation of hauntings and paranormal experiences. At this point, the manager, whom we will call Donna, spoke up, saying she had a ghost story of her own. I'm recalling the story from my memory, so forgive the fuzzy details, as is the case with so many second-hand stories. Several years back, when Donna's first child was younger, I want to say it was only about four or five years old, an interesting encounter took place. Donna was in the kitchen when she realized, as only a mother can, that it had become entirely too quiet in the house. You know that sixth sense when parents have when they're running around, the yelling and the laughter is replaced with silence. Either something bad has happened or someone is getting into trouble and trying to be quiet about it. With this realization that her child was no longer in eyeshot, she went to investigate. She found him in her bedroom. The child was standing in the middle of the room, looking up as though toward someone much taller, with an arm up in the air and a hand cupped downward, as if resting on a hand or on an arm. The child was clearly interacting with someone, perhaps an imaginary friend, that Donna could not see. Smiling, it was then that Donna asked the question, and I remember this well. She said, Mijo, what are you doing? It was then he turned to her and said that he was talking to this man. And did she want to say goodbye to him? That's not verbatim, mind you, but it does give the gist. Well, if that just gave you a shiver, you know how Donna felt. The smile fell from her face as the reality that something very odd was occurring became apparent. She rushed over to the child, scooped him up, and left the room. Later that day she received a call. Her grandfather had passed away just hours earlier. Now, when her story had finished, my eyes were wide as I exclaimed that this type of experience is known as a crisis apparition and that her story is similar to many that have occurred. 
I don't know if that provided any additional comfort knowing that her experience was not uncommon, but hearing that there may have been a purpose, that that this was not random or imagined, hopefully brought some peace of mind. For those that are unfamiliar with this ghostly phenomenon, this critically timed appearance of family and loved ones at the time of either death or near-death critical moments is aptly named as a crisis apparition. I say aptly because of what the phenomenon is not. These apparitions are not ghosts in the usual sense, though they can at times have a ghostly appearance. As well, this is not a haunting. These are not entities attached to a person or place or object, and they only occur once for a varying period of time. This phenomenon is also not very well understood. The apparition itself does not provide much explanation, often not speaking at all in most examples. The focus is usually to convey some sort of emotional, personal message through facial expression and gesture. Even in those cases where a spoken interchange is reported, it is not to provide exposition, but rather a message of love or appreciation. At a minimum, these apparitions are there to announce their death at a personal, individual level. Of course, with such an ambiguous description, while we may understand what this phenomenon looks like, it doesn't really tell us what they are. Let's start with ideas as to the source. How is it created? If it's not the ghost of a dead or dying loved one, and it's more than just hopeful imagination of the experiencer, who made it? I came across a succinct explanation, which I think accurately answers this question. Unsurprisingly, from a psychic arts website called Imagine Spirits, which reads, Curiously, crisis apparitions seem to occur when someone in a split second of time believes they will undoubtedly die in that instant. The urgency and sadness of their impending death may project an image of themselves to someone close, like a mother or significant other. In other cases, a severe accident that has snuffed an individual out of existence accounts for many reports of the spirit of the deceased seen at that exact moment. In short, it is the person in crisis that creates the apparition, oftentimes doing so unwittingly. Seems reasonable enough. It's a projection, which leads to the next question of how they are manifesting this projected image or apparition. Is it a spiritual snapshot or astral projection? Is it some sort of energy or thought form manifested through sheer will or raw emotion? Again, let's turn to imaginespirit.com for a possible explanation. Crisis apparitions usually appear full-sized, solid-looking, and are often surrounded by a surreal glow. The theory behind this phenomenon is that someone who is either ill or dying unconsciously transmits a telepathic image of themselves to a loved one or friend. In some cases, that the person has a serene quality about them, as if to say, I'm okay, don't worry about me. They are visible for several seconds and then disappear, leaving the witness in shock. Okay, so the idea of a telepathic image could make sense. Putting this concept in context of Donna's story, a telepathic projection 
essentially a mentally sent image, explains the curious aspect that Donna herself could not see the apparition with whom her child was interacting. If the grandfather was thinking of his great-grandchild, perhaps with some joy or pride at the time of death, those final moments may have created a telepathic image for the child meant to convey that swell of emotion and approval. Understanding what these apparitions may be and how they might be created does certainly help us to grasp the phenomenon, giving some definition and description. But we are left with the question of why. Why might these individuals in crisis mode feel so compelled, even subconsciously, as to create this telepathic image to someone else? Answering this question may give us an idea as to the basis of fascination for these crisis apparition experiences, thus providing the core theriology for the phenomenon. To do this, it will be helpful to hear another story, this one collected by writer John Blake in his 2011 CNN.com article on crisis apparitions, titled, Do Loved Ones Bid Farewell from Beyond the Grave? John tells the story of Nina DeSanto, the owner of a hair salon in New Jersey, who had her own interesting experience one night while closing up shop. Nina DeSanto was about to close her New Jersey hair salon one winter's night when she saw him standing outside the shop's glass front door. It was Michael. He was a soft-spoken customer who'd been going through a brutal patch in his life. His wife had divorced him after having an affair with his stepbrother, and he had lost custody of his boy and girl in the ensuing battle. He was emotionally shattered, but DeSanto had tried to help. She'd listened to his problems, given him pep talks, taken him out for drinks. When DeSanto opened the door that Saturday night, Michael was smiling. Nina, I can't stay long, he said, pausing in the doorway. I just wanted to stop by and say thank you for everything. They chatted a bit more before Michael left, and DeSanto went home. On Sunday, she received a strange call from a salon employee. Michael's body had been found the previous morning, at least nine hours before she talked to him at her shop. He had committed suicide. If Michael was dead, who or what did she talk to that night? The article goes on to discuss the ideas of what this phenomenon may be, as we've already done. But just this portion of the story leaves the reader wondering how a connection like DeSanto had with Michael, even through tremendously caring and supportive uh, action during this hard time, how could it result in, in such an extreme connection? Why would Michael appear there, of all places? The article answers this doubt as it closes with more on the story. DeSanto was baffled at first, but now she has a theory. Michael started off as a customer, but she became his confidant. Once, after one of her pep talks, Michael told her, You make me feel as if I can conquer the world. Maybe Michael had to settle affairs in this world before he could move on to the next, DeSanto said. A lot of times, when a person dies tragically, there's a certain amount of guilt or turmoil, she said. I don't think they leave this earth. They stay here. I think he kind of felt he had unfinished business. He needed to say goodbye. And so he did, she said. This is how she described their last conversation. As they chatted face to face in the doorway of her shop, DeSanto said they never touched, never even shook hands, but she didn't remember anything unusual about him. 
no disembodied voice, no translucent body, no I-see-dead-people vibe as in the movie The Sixth Sense. I'm in a really good place now, she recalled him saying. This is the answer. This is the explanation for the apparition to appear to her. Given the struggles Michael had been facing during this time, Nina had become an anchor in the storm, a source of calm and peace, even if it was not enough to dissuade him from making the tragic choice of suicide, they had become connected. The article has two little paragraphs tucked in it that explain what exactly this connection is. Almost as an aside, as though the author didn't fully realize he was providing a basis for further understanding. The article says, People who are extremely close develop a virtual telepathic link that exists in and beyond this world, says Jeff Ballinger, a journalist who collected ghost stories for his book, Our Haunted Lives, True Life Ghost Encounters. People have these experiences all the time, Ballinger said. There's an interconnectedness between people. Do you know how you're close to someone and you just know they're sick or something is wrong? That interconnectedness, that telepathic link mentioned by the uh, writer Bellinger in the article is exactly what provides our answer, our understanding behind our fascination. See, it's not the experiences themselves, though they certainly do capture our attention. No, we are fascinated by the idea that they are born of connectedness. Dr. Steve Taylor, Ph.D., author and senior lecturer of psychology at Leeds Beckett University in England, provided discussion of the topic in a November 4, 2016 article on psychologytoday.com. The article, titled simply Connectedness, Are We Really Separate Individuals?, gives us, I think, some insight into the strange reaction we have to the topic of crisis apparition. That two-sided emotion that finds the idea of such an apparition, on one hand, comforting, and on the other, a bit disturbing. Dr. Taylor is not talking about crisis apparitions, of course, at least not overtly, but given his premise, you will see how it's an easy connection to make. Dr. Taylor begins the article by establishing the conventional scientific view the most people hold of themselves and human beings in general as individuals. The idea that we are distinct entities, autonomous in both body and mind from others. He says, The conventional scientific view seems to validate this impression of individuality. It suggests that, in essence, we human beings are agglomerations of material particles, atoms and molecules that work together to form different parts of our bodies and organizing the interactions between them. Our minds and all our mental phenomena are the result of the combined activity of brain cells. But, in contrast to this mainstream convention, the article points out that we often have experiences that contradicts this view. Taylor calls these interconnective experiences, identifying three different types. The first is in the interconnectedness of feeling, which he also refers to as the empathic connection. This is more than simply imagining sympathetically what someone else is going through, but rather a deep empathy in which Dr. Taylor says, We seem to enter into other people's mind space and share their feelings, 
If they are feeling sad, we sense their sadness. If they are hurt, we sense their pain. The second type of experience is the interconnectedness of being. These are experiences which Dr. Taylor also refers to as awakening experiences, in which in an expansive and intense state of being and connection with the natural world or humanity or the universe as a whole is experienced. This idea of transcendence and awakening is definitely something we may have to explore in greater detail in a future episode. But the third type is the one we've been looking for this episode. It is the interconnectedness of knowing. It's this type that is typified by experiences of spontaneous communication without direct interaction. Sound familiar? Dr. Taylor cites the common experiences of thinking of someone you haven't seen in years, only to then receive a phone call from them, or of having that strong feeling that a friend is pregnant, only to find out later that you were correct. Of course, the materialist perspective would hold occurrences and experiences such as this to be coincidence, that this intuitive, indirect communication is just cognitive bias piecing together information after the fact into a cohesive, seemingly prescient order. Cognitive function is just neural synapses firing away, our gray matter churning out interpretation of external stimulus and making order out of the chaos. We are a standalone piece of meat hardware. There is no interconnectedness. But let's give it the benefit of the doubt and say that even if we could somehow, at the moment of death, produce a neural signal, which is bioelectric after all, strong enough to jump from us to some unsuspecting target, much like a cell phone call that loses battery after the send button is pushed, even if the phone rings on the other end, the call will be cut when the battery dies. Yes, cold example, I know, but apt for the materialist perspective. Who knows? Maybe it is the correct perspective. But there is another possibility, presented by Dr. Taylor. The possibility that we are interconnected. Maybe these forms of interconnection are not illusion. And maybe there is no cognitive separation between people. Now follow along with me here. Taylor is reinforcing a popular perspective on consciousness, which is that it may not be produced by the brain. It's a concept known as panpsychism, in which consciousness is a fundamental quality of reality, much like mass and gravity. In this idea, our brains, the amazing and complex electrochemical machine that it is, acts as a receiver and transmitter within this shared consciousness network. Yes, I know that sounds a bit new age. And uh, a we are all one sort of perspective. But that's why crisis apparitions make us question what's happening, isn't it? If a person can feel connected so strongly to another that a telepathic image, projections, thought form, whatever you want to call it, can be formed and sent and then can exist beyond that moment of death until it is received and experienced by the intended recipient. How does that happen? Where did that thought go? How did it continue to exist after the battery ran out? How can a connection like that even exist? Ghosts, spirits, and entities, in comparison, are easier to stomach. 
Ghosts can be recorded memories of energy held by the environment. Spirits, if they linger, are unique beings. Even if they are tied to a person or place and haunting them, it's an external influence. Other entities of the supernatural bent, if they exist, might possibly be explained as forms of matter or energy that we and science have just yet to explain or understand. With all these, the supernatural may just be an area for which material evidence is simply yet to be discovered. Crisis apparitions, <laughs> that's another story. They aren't beings in themselves. They are not strange matter or energy forms. A telepathic link existing beyond a moment of death or mortal crisis that can connect people, transfer information and emotion, and keep it going into some sort of telepathic ether, an ocean of consciousness, like a glass bottle tossed out to sea, to be found and uncorked later by the exact recipient intended. That's pretty fascinating. And it's altogether paradigm-shifting for most, which is probably why there hasn't been much study into crisis apparition, why we simply enjoy hearing the stories appreciating the themes of comfort and closure for one or, or both parties, not really trying to understand the how or what of the whole experience. Crisis apparitions and the interconnectedness of knowledge could, if we let them, haunt our conventional view of consciousness and autonomous existence of mind. What if we are not an island? What if we are part of this ocean of thought? What if we are connected? Who would you reach out to in your final moments? Who has reached out to you? Let's hear a few more stories before we go. Sima Lieberman said she'd experienced that ominous feeling and has never forgotten it, though it took place more than 40 years ago. Today, Lieberman is a workplace diversity consultant, but in the late 1960s, she was a young woman in love. Her boyfriend, Johnny, was a mellow hippie who loved everybody a guy so nice that friends called him a pushover, she said. She loved Johnny, and they purchased an apartment together and decided to marry. Then one night, while Lieberman was at her mother's home in the Bronx, the phone rang and she answered. Johnny was on the line, sounding rushed and far away. Static crackled. I just want you to know that I love you, and I'll never be mean to anybody again, he said. There was more static, and then the line went dead. Lieberman was left with just a dial tone. She tried to call him back to no avail. When she awoke the next morning, an unsettling feeling came over her. She said it's hard to put into words, but she could no longer feel Johnny's presence. Then she found out why. Several hours later, I got a call from his mother that he had been murdered the night before, she said. Johnny was shot in the head as he sat in a car that night. Lieberman thinks Johnny somehow contacted her after his death. A crisis apparition reaching out not through a vision or a whiff of perfume, but across telephone lines. She sorted through the alternatives over the years. Could he have called before or during his murder? Lieberman doesn't think so. It was the era before cell phones, she said. The murderer wasn't likely to let him use a payphone, and he couldn't have called after he was shot because he died instantly. Only years later, when she read an article about other static-filled calls, people claimed to have received from beyond the grave, did it make sense? Johnny was calling to say goodbye. And let's leave with this one. 
Childhood is supposed to be a time of innocence, a time when thoughts of death are far away. But crisis apparition stories aren't confined to adults and teens. Donna Stewart was six years old and growing up in Coos Bay, Oregon. One of her best friends was Danny. One day, Danny had to go to the hospital to have his tonsils removed. Stewart played with him on the morning of the surgery before saying goodbye. She said she was in her bedroom the next day when she looked up and saw Danny standing there. He wanted to know if she wanted to go outside and play. Stewart trotted to her mother's bedroom to ask if she could play with Danny. Her mother froze. She went white, Stewart said. She told me that wasn't possible. Her mother broke the news. Danny had an allergic reaction during surgery and passed away, Stewart said. When I went back to my room, he was gone. Okay, that will be all for today, theoryologists. But what do you think of crisis apparitions now? I hope that this gave you something to ponder and perhaps give you a reason to rethink your connection to people and the world around you. And, since we are all possibly connected, I hope you now understand that you are as much a part of this podcast as I am. We theoryologists are a connected community. And to keep that community going and growing, I need your help. Patreon is one of the best ways to support the show financially. A small monthly patronage provides access to an exclusive RSS feed, patron-only content, and a perfect place to connect with fans of the show and me. Conspiracy Theoryology will always be free to listen, but unfortunately, it isn't free to make. So know that any support you provide is deeply appreciated and will go toward the continuous effort to make the show bigger and better for you, the listener. All right, do you have any additional thoughts and theories about the topic today? Let me know. Email me, contact at conspiracytheoryology.com or find me on the socials at TheoryologyPod. All the info can be found at conspiracytheoryology.com, including how to support the show and the links to the merchandise store for t-shirts and other goodies. And do not forget to share the show with others. That is one of the single best ways to help the show grow. Music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.